All right, well, hey, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill, and uh, this morning we are continuing in a series that we started last week where we are uh, walking through seven letters written to seven different churches in the book of Revelation, and we're calling this series Let Us Hear, and the idea is that we want to hear the message that God has for us in these letters that he has written to these churches. Um, And before I get into our second letter today, I want to say a few things about the book of Revelation by way of introduction, Um, because last week, Pastor Ashley did a wonderful intro, and yet there is so much to say about this particular book, because it can be confusing, and it can be intimidating, and it's hard for us as 21st century Americans to understand this kind of, of writing. And so I'm going to start by asking just a simple question today. What kind of book is Revelation. What kind of book? It's the very last book in the Bible. You see, sometimes we think of the Bible as one book, but it's actually, it's a collection of books. It's a library of 66 different books, and within those books are different forms of literature or different genres. It's a fancy word you can now use to make yourself sound smart around your friends, genres. In fact, when I was in seminary, I got introduced to that word genre, and I really liked it, and I would use it a lot. And then my wife started making fun of me. She's like, you need to quit it with the genre thing, you know? So like, but today, I can say it a few times, right? So let me just give you a, a few of the different genres found in the Bible. Now, if you kind of read the scriptures, you'll find history in the Bible. You'll find narrative, like stories of people's lives and events that have happened. You'll find wisdom literature, literature that helps you to live a wise life. You'll find poetry. You'll find prophecy. You'll find letters. And then there's this kind of strange genre called apocalyptic literature, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But the question we should always ask when we're reading the Bible is, what kind of genre is this book I am currently reading because every genre is approached just a little bit differently. You'll read the Psalms, which are largely poetry, differently than you'll read the historical narrative of the book of Acts. You'll read Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, with a slightly different mindset than when you read the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. And if you think, step back, we really, we get this. We understand this in our world. This is, this is not a new concept. I mean, you've never been watching KGB, KGW and heard the news anchor say, this just in, tiny blue people with hats found living in Forest Park and harassing a cat named Azriel. A news anchor would never say that because we all understand that the Smurfs is a cartoon. That's the genre, which is not the same as the news at least most of the time. (laughs) But that is a whole nother sermon. A whole nother sermon. So again, the question is, what kind of genre is Revelation? And primarily, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Right at the beginning of Revelation, the very first words, the first verse of the first chapter says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's the church, what must soon take place. And that word that's translated revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. The apocalypsis from Jesus Christ. It literally means an unveiling. A pulling back of a veil to reveal something. 
It's the revelation of something not seen, which is where the book gets his name. And this is important because in our world, when we think about apocalyptic literature or the apocalypse, we think of the end of the world, right? It's the end of the world as we know it, right? I mean, there's, so there's this whole like uh, group and category of books in our world and movies and TV shows that are called apocalyptic, and they are about what the end of the world might look like when it comes. Think of Mad Max or World War Z or I Am Legend with Will Smith or Bird Box with Sandra Bullock or A Quiet Place 1 and 2, which if you watch will scare the snot out of you. Um, or if you're kind of looking for a throwback, 12 Monkeys or the Terminator series or The Last Man on Earth or The Walking Dead or The Book of Eli with, with Denzel Washington, which I highly recommend. At any rate, the list goes on and on and on because we are enthralled with apocalyptic entertainment. What will things, what will take us down? What will take down the world and the human race? Will it be aliens? Will it be war? Will it be a virus too soon? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Friends, in spite of what the Left Behind series has taught us, we must understand this. The apocalyptic literature of Revelation is not just biblical apocalyptic entertainment. The great theologian uh, G.K. Chesterton said this about Revelation. This is one of my favorite quotes. Ready? Though John, who writes this book, though John saw many strange monsters in his Revelation vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, some of you are like, I don't understand that. The idea here is that people come up with lots of crazy comments and, and ideas when interpreting the book of Revelation, some crazy, crazy things. And Revelation does give us some pictures and some images of the future, of the end of the world even, but not so that we can try to figure out what the mark of the beast is, right? I'm pretty sure it's this chip they put in your arm in Switzerland, and I'm not going to get it, right? Like, you can just scan it over and you can make copies without even you know, swiping your card. I'm not getting the chip. I'm just going to use my card, right? Because mark of the beast, right? It's not so that we can figure out exactly when the tribulation is going to happen and have our zombie kits ready and run for the hills because that's exactly what the Bible says to do. Um, it's not so we can figure out who the Antichrist will be. Spoiler alert, it's probably going to be our next president, It has been our next president for the last 12 election cycles, (laughs) according to someone. And so I'm pretty sure the next, you know, person will be as well. At any rate, see, Revelation is often thought to be a book about the future, but it is actually a book about how to live our lives now in light of future and spiritual realities. See, Revelation is very much written for Christians in their present life and world. Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, says this. Scholars debate the origins of apocalyptic theology and literature, but its basic function seems fairly clear to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis, particularly evil and oppression, Apocalyptic literature both expresses and creates hope by offering scathing critique of the oppressors, 
passionate exhortations to defiance, and sometimes even preparation for confrontations and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil, usually articulated in symbolic, even cryptic language. That's a lot, isn't it, right? This hope means that apocalyptic language is also the language of resistance. See, apocalyptic literature, Revelation included, is about resistance. It's about not getting swayed by this world's values. It's about not being sucked in to the oppressive and unjust systems of our societies. The goal of Revelation is to encourage the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, to stand strong in the face of overwhelming adversity in their present age. And friends, no one needed that message more than the church we are looking at today. If you look at this map, you can see um, this is uh, this is Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. If we take, click to the next slide, we're going to zoom in on it. You can see that the seven churches that this book was written to The island of Patmos there is where John had his vision. It's where he wrote Revelation. And then the letter goes kind of clockwise around from Ephesus. We talked about Ephesus last week. This week, the letter's going to Smyrna and then up and around. Those are the seven cities, the seven churches this letter goes to. And um, ironically, this is true. Just this week on Wednesday, I got a voicemail on my phone from Smyrna. I mean, this is totally serious. I didn't even know there was a Smyrna, but apparently there's a little town in Tennessee called Smyrna, and I got some spam, like a spam call, and I look, and it says Smyrna, and I was like, is God calling me to tell me about my sermon? Like, I answered quick, because I was like, what should I say? And then there was no one on there, and you know, anyway, it was... That's neither here nor there, but it really happened, and it kind of freaked me out. I was like, Smyrna, I looked it up on Google, I'm like, Smyrna, Tennessee, is this a real thing? Anyway, here's what John writes to, not Smyrna, Tennessee, but the Smyrna of Asia Minor in the first century, and to the people of God there, to the church in this city. Here's what it says. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and by the way, the word angel, Ashley said this last week, is also the word for messenger. Most scholars think that that word is not talking about some angelic being, but really just the leader of that particular church. It's debated. So the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's Jesus. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, today we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about three things this letter offers to the church, to followers of Jesus in this world. Encouragement, challenge, and opportunity. All three of those are for you today. An encouragement, a challenge, and an opportunity. But first we need to understand a few things about this city, Smyrna. Because this was a city of beauty 
and comfort. Smyrna was home to one of the world's finest harbors, and this harbor brought tremendous prosperity and wealth. This is sort of a a rendition of what ancient Smyrna would have looked like, and you can see the beautiful harbor there that brought so much wealth to this city. This city was called the Flower of Asia. Aristides, the uh, Athenian philosopher, said, the winds blow through every part of Smyrna and make it as fresh as a grove of trees. On the coins in Smyrna, because in the Roman world, sometimes cities would have their own coins. Uh, on the coins in Smyrna, they would stamp these words. And you know that what a, what a country or what a city stamps on their coins is a part of who they are. This is what they write on their coins. First city of Asia in size and beauty. People did not lack confidence, did they? They were proud people. And the one thing that the people of Smyrna were more proud of than anything else was this. They were part of the Roman Empire. They were Romans. You see, it was Rome that protected them. It was Rome that brought them peace and prosperity and the opportunity to pursue the good, comfortable, happy life that they had all grown accustomed to. And so the people of Smyrna pledged allegiance to Rome above all else. And part of that allegiance was that every year, every citizen of Smyrna had to go and burn incense to the emperor at Caesar's altar right in the middle of the city. And so people would go and they would burn incense at this altar and they would make this declaration, Caesar is Lord. And when you did that, when you burned that incense and you made that declaration, you would receive a certificate. And that certificate said this, I am a faithful citizen and supporter of the Roman Empire. I am proud to be a Roman, where at least I know I'm free. But without that certificate, you were seen as an outsider. Without that certificate, you were a rebel. You were an enemy of the state. And Christians, of course, could not get this certificate because they could not do this. They could not declare Caesar as Lord. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Christians could not say my highest allegiance is to Rome because their highest allegiance was to God. And so Christians would not get the certificate. So all over the Roman Empire, but especially in Smyrna, there was this constant pressure on Christians to, to just join in and to just take on the identity and the values and the customs and the habits of the empire. I mean... You don't have to be that committed to Jesus, do you? You don't have to be only committed to Jesus. I mean, you don't have to be so extreme. It's just a little incense. It's just a statement. And aren't you appreciative of all that this Roman Empire has done for you? Constant pressure. In fact, the the word in our passage translated afflictions is the word Flipsis in Greek, it literally means pressure. Jesus says, I know your afflictions. I know the pressure that you are facing. Friends, this letter is written to Jesus' followers who are under constant pressure to just go along with the society and compromise their convictions, choosing the empire of Rome over the kingdom of God. 
And to not do that, to not compromise, to not give in to the pressure meant that you would be persecuted and discriminated against. People did not want to associate with Christians in this town. They did not want to do business with Christians in this town because they were Jesus' Lord people, not Caesar's Lord people. This is why in our letter, Jesus acknowledges that these Christians are facing what? Poverty. Why are they poor? I know your afflictions and your poverty, he says. They're poor because they are being economically discriminated against. And this word poverty is not a word that means kind of middle class. It's not like, oh, I couldn't afford a Tesla. I have to drive a Honda Accord. No, this is like the lowest of the low. These are poor people. Why? Because they are choosing Christ over empire. The letter mentions the Jews who are a synagogue of Satan. These are Jewish people who were so threatened by and against the Christians that they would report them to the authorities. They would report them as, as ones who didn't have a certificate and who would not bend a knee to Caesar. I'm going to pause right here and I want to notice something for us. This is the encouragement part of this letter. I want us to notice that right in the middle of the poverty and the suffering and the persecution these Christ followers are facing, Jesus says to them these two words, I know. I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander that you are continuously experiencing. I know about the pressure you are constantly under, and I know how easy it would be to just compromise a little Friends, one of the most painful parts of suffering and struggle, of injustice and oppression, is how isolating it is. How it, how it so often feels like you are alone, like no one else really gets it or feels it. Have you ever felt that way? You've been going through something really hard and just, you just feel by yourself in it? alone in your struggle like no one else really understands. But Jesus, in this passage, friends, he wants his followers to know this. I see you. I'm with you in your struggle. I understand. Like At the beginning of these letters, Jesus, um, in all seven letters written, Jesus will introduce himself. Like He kind of says, like, hey, to the church of so-and-so, and then he talks about who writes it, and he describes himself. And every single introduction is different. Seven letters, seven intros, seven different intros. And they are all sort of tailor-made for each individual church and what they need to hear, what they need to know about Jesus. Listen to how he introduces himself to uh, the church at Smyrna. It says, these are the words of him, that's Jesus, who is the first and the last, that's Old Testament language for God. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. I am the Lord of heaven and earth, he's saying, who died and came to life again. See, Jesus wants them to know, I don't just understand your pain. It's not like he's got some information. Like the angels have reported, they've come and reported, hey, just so you know, Jesus, the church in Smyrna is going through some tough stuff. He's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, tell them I'm thinking about them. He's like, no, what he's saying is, I've been there. I've walked through the persecution. I've walked through the suffering myself. I know what you are facing. Friends, many in this room have been faithful in affliction. 
Many in this room have walked through tremendously hard things, difficult things, struggles. How do I stay committed to Jesus in a company that bends what I think is right? How do I stay committed to Jesus? Maybe you've asked in a school where no one seems to walk with God. How do I stay committed to Jesus in a marriage that feels so difficult at times? How do I stay committed to Jesus in the middle of these family dynamics, financial dynamics, friend dynamics, dating dynamics? The list goes on. So many of you in this room, you could have compromised. You could have like walked away or chosen a different path, an easier path, a wider path. But you didn't. You haven't. You fought and you've persevered and you've endured and you've held on to Jesus. And I believe he wants you to hear this today. I know your affliction. I see it. I see the pressure that you are under. And I understand what you've been through. Into what situation of your life do you need that encouragement this morning? Where in your life do you just need to acknowledge this is hard. It's hard to follow Jesus it's hard to be who he's calling me to be in this area. And I just, I, just need him to, I just need to hear his words. I need him to say to me, I am with you and I see you and I know. And well done. We also notice, though, that this letter, um, in this letter, Jesus doesn't say, I see it and I know it and it's been hard. And you know what? I'm going to make it all better. Notice he doesn't say, I'll fix it tomorrow. It'll all be good. He doesn't say, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says that in other places, but he doesn't say it here. <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, it's going to get worse. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Wasn't really what I prayed for, God. <laughs> I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, in Revelation, apocalyptic literature, numbers don't always mean numbers. It's not a real literal book. It's an exact um, and so does that really mean 10 days, 10 years, 10 centuries? We don't know, but here's what we do know. He's saying the persecution is going to ramp up. The suffering is going to now intensify. It's going, he says, to get demonic. And friends, history tells us that this is true. That Christians in Smyrna, in this very city, were not just made fun of or left out or you know, economically discriminated against. They were actually beaten and tortured and killed by the Romans. The most famous example of this was the Bishop of Smyrna, um, the leader of the entire church in this city. He's a guy named Polycarp. Some of you have heard of Polycarp. Um, some scholars think that he may have actually been the messenger who received this letter from John. To the messenger, and it might have been just to Polycarp, and then Polycarp was to pass it on to the church. We're not for sure, but some scholars believe that to be true. But here's what we do know. And 155 AD, about, you know, 60 years or so after Revelation, Polycarp was captured. He was drugged into the arena in the middle of the city, in the middle of Smyrna, and he was told in front of a large gathering to deny Christ and to pledge allegiance to Caesar or else. Here's what Polycarp said. For 86 years, I have been Jesus' servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? The proconsul responds, swear by Caesar's fortune. Polycarp, if you imagine that I will swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, 
pretending not to know who I am, I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not change your attitude. Call them. If you make light of beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. So they tied him to a stake, stacked wood around him. Actually, um, we're told that as they are binding him to this stake, he says, you don't even need to bind me. I will stay in these flames willingly. So they leave the bound ropes loose around him so he could literally like jump out. They light the fire. He stands there burning alive, praising God for the opportunity of dying for Christ's name. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will test you and you will suffer persecution. And then listen to this part, friends, because I believe this is the heart of the entire letter for us. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be faithful, church. Here's what it means. To be true to one's word or commitments, to be true to what one has pledged to believe and do, to be true to who one has professed to be. And friends, we as followers of Jesus have pledged to be those who will follow him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We have pledged to be his people and his bride and his church. And not just when things are easy and convenient. Be faithful, it says, even to the point of death, even when it's hard, even when there's pressure, even when there's temptation, even when there is a cost and perhaps a very high cost to following. Jesus says this to his church, be faithful even to the point of death. Friends, this is our challenge today. This is the challenge for those of us who follow Jesus in this empire if we don't feel the pressure of following Jesus in this world, if we are never facing afflictions, if we're never experiencing suffering or pain or inconvenience for following Christ in this world, might it be because we have compromised, because we have compromised perhaps just little our allegiance to following Christ? Do we compromise just enough? Like, we're not going to renounce Christ. We're not going to say, like, Caesar is Lord. But maybe we compromise just a little to take the edge off, just enough to be accepted, just enough to avoid the pressure. Are we being faithful or are we compromising for comfort? Friends, do we not live in a world right now, a city right now, a country right now, dare I say an empire right now, where there is constant pressure from every angle and every side to think and act and believe and live in alignment with the culture instead of the kingdom? Does not this society we are a part of pull us and lure us and coax us and try to convince us that living for all this world has to offer will satisfy our every desire? Seriously, ask yourself today, 
I'm going to ask myself, where are we, where are we, or where are we tempted to compromise our faithfulness? Where are we tempted to compromise theologically, to be a bit more accepted, to make things a bit more comfortable? Where are we tempted to compromise sexually, to make things easier, more comfortable, more pleasurable? Where are we tempted to compromise financially, maritally? What about the way that we love others, love our neighbors, love our enemies? Are we compromising? What about how you eat and treat food? What about your time? What about your talents? What about your schedule? Just look at your calendar. Does your life in this empire demonstrate faithfulness to God or compromise for comfort? I told you this wasn't going to be a very fun series. Here's what the letter of Revelation wants to do in our lives. This is the opportunity part. This is the opportunity for you and me right here. I talked at the beginning about how apocalyptic literature kind of pulls back the veil and allows us to see ultimate spiritual realities, right? They're kind of hidden from us. We all sort of sense there's more to this life than just this body. There's more to this world and this universe than just the stars and the sky and the mountains and the seas. Like, I see it all and it feels really real, and yet I sense that there's more, right? Revelation is pulling back the veil so that we can see, yes, there's more, John is pulling back the veil for the church in Smyrna, and he's saying this. Don't just see your life in terms of this physical world. Don't just see your afflictions and your poverty and your physical death. No, see that although you may be poor here, you are rich in the heavenlies. That's what he's saying. That although you may die a physical death, maybe even for your faith, you will not die the second death, a spiritual death. You will not... You will instead receive the victor's crown of eternal life. You see, what John and Revelation are calling for here is for us, the church, to live our lives with a much bigger reality in mind, with the Lord of the universe in mind, with Jesus Christ who defeated death in mind, with eternal life with God forever and ever in mind. Pull back the veil. Don't be blinded by this world and see that there is an eternity ahead for you and me. Here's how Richard Richard Balcom, um, the great Revelation scholar, says it. And this is a long quote, but it's amazing. So focus in. I know you're ready to be done because you see the band. But like, like focus in here. This is such good stuff. This is an opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity. This This is Balcom. John, and therefore his readers with him, is taken up into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. He was given a glimpse behind the scenes of history so that he can see what is really going on in the events of his time and place. He is also transported in a vision into the final future of the world so that he can see the present from the perspective of what its final outcome must be and God's ultimate purpose for human history. The effect of John's vision must be to expand the reader's vision of both of the world, both spatially into heaven 
and temporally into the eschatological, that's a big word, or end of the, this age, future. Or to put it another way, and here's, here's the great part, to open their world, our world, the reader's world, to divine transcendence. It is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven, but that the here and now look quite different when they are open to transcendence. That the here and now look quite different when they are open to transcendence. Friends, are we, as the church, open to transcendence? Are we living life here and now with the knowledge of the eternal future that we have been promised? Bacham is saying, John is saying, Jesus is saying to us in this letter, church, you have this opportunity. You have this opportunity to live for more than just shoes and cars and vacations and parties. I mean, if this world and life is all there is, then by all means, you know, go for comfort and pleasure and popularity and lots of likes on Instagram and happiness, materialism. I mean, like, pursue the American dream with everything you got. Because if this world is all there is, then I say, go for it. But if it's not all there is, if there is truly transcendence, if there is a spiritual reality behind the veil of our physical reality, if on the cross Jesus pulled back the veil to reveal that sin and death have been defeated for you and me, that our sins have been forgiven, and that we can live with God as his sons and daughters in eternity forever and evermore, if that is the case, then by all means, church, let's live with the end in mind. We have an opportunity to live for something more. Let's live with the hope of not just 50 or 40 or 30 more years on this planet, but with the hope of an eternity together with our Father in heaven. That's our calling. That's our opportunity. That's what Jesus longs for the church in Smyrna. He says, there's going to be a battle in this place. There's going to be struggles in this place. It's, you're going to have a tough time in this place. But guess what? This place is not all there is. There's something bigger and better and more. And it's beyond what you can even ever picture. He hardly even has words or images for it, which is why we have such a hard time with Revelation. Because the eternity that's coming, we can't even comprehend it yet, friends. That's our calling, that's our opportunity to fight our battles here with God at our side such that we will be at his side forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you.